welcome to the Pitbull Patty Show. I'm your host, Patty Stuckler. We're keeping it real here with straight talk and sharing true stories that will inspire you to change your life. Are you ready for this? Because here we go. My guest today will share an incredible true story of adventure. It's a story of family and friendship and five men on a quest to find buried treasure. Where they found it will really surprise you and what they did with the largest collection of pre-Civil War artifacts will simply amaze you. Welcome one of the Fab Five, David Hawley. (laughs) Hey Patty, thank you very much for the invitation to be on your show, it's awesome. (laughs) I am so excited to have you on, and I hear your dog in the background. <laughs> you can hear it back, yeah. Sorry, he's, he's, he's on cue. He knows right when to bark. That is so funny. So, yeah, um, I went to your, the, well, I don't want to give away some of the, um, some of the background, so I'm just going to start with, so tell me how in the world you, you really began a legitimate hunt for buried treasure. How, how did that happen? Well, um, everybody loves buried treasure, you know, so that's like no surprise there. Um, What seems like another lifetime ago, long, long ago, uh, my dad, my brother, and I were in the heating and air conditioning business. We fixed furnaces. We fixed air conditioners. We went to lots of people's homes. And one day, um, I went to a place that I fixed his air conditioner, went into the house to get everything all fixed up inside. And there in his room, on the back wall, were maps and pictures of steamboats, and that you don't normally see that in people's homes, but there it was. And on the right wall were pictures of flying saucers where they landed because he was into that. And on the left wall, floor to ceiling, this big full size cutout of a Bigfoot, Sasquatch, or whatever. Okay, mm-hmm. he was into that. Okay, and so he told all these stories, and he was he was very interesting and very compelling. And I left thinking. The guy's a little bit weird, but <laughs> but the steamboats, now that, I know that they were here, and so I went to the library and checked out steamboat books and been looking for them ever since, you know? And so thus, we were in the, the steamboat treasure hunting business. But so that we was- We were not in the museum business. So you, but you, that was just like you, you kind of stumbled upon it. So how did you get- other family members, your your dad, right, and your brother, yeah. and other couple, two other men involved. How did you get other people uh, really on board with what became your mission, your passion? How did that happen? Well, after I leave the guy's house, um, called dad and said, "Listen, meet me for lunch." You know, so Greg joined us, my brother, and we were having lunch at this hamburger place, friend of ours, uh, and we did some of his refrigeration work, and he saw us sitting out there, all huddled up. And so he came out and slid into the booth with us, and he says, what are you guys talking about This that clearly has you so intrigued? And so I repeated the story of just what I told you. And, and so more in jest, they said, well, Dave, you go find a steamboat, and we'll all help you dig it up. I <laughs> said, all right, I will. <laughs> and so we met another fellow along the way, um, a guy named Dave, who was also Sounded like fun to go dig up steamboats, but he had a bulldozer, so he's automatically into the group, you know? And so we were off to the river and through the woods to find a steamboat. And, and how, how old were you at the time? I don't know, mid-30s, I'd guess. Early 30s, early 30s. Um, and 
and uh, you know, I mean, that's what I did. I didn't play golf. I didn't do all the, a lot of other things that people do. Um, but, but I had some spare time. And so I would spend my time in the library and that out in the farm. And over time I found 11 boats and the Arabia was one of them. The Arabia was a great boat. It sounded like it said it was the, the newspaper article that I found said it was coming up the river, um, in September, 1856. It had supplies for 16 towns. The newspaper said it was a large and valuable cargo and it hit a tree and it sunk. There was no loss of life, but they couldn't get to the boat in time um, to save it. And so it's cargo, the boat itself, they said was a total loss. And over time, the river changed its course and it moved. And a lot of people are surprised that the river moves, but it does, not so much today, but back in the day it did. And so the river at that place moved a half a mile. It left the boat buried not in the river, but in a Kansas cornfield, a half a mile from the river and 45 feet down. So, so let me stop you there. So, okay. so the Arabia was one of a number of ships that you read about in your research, going to the library, just really kind of, you were just so intrigued about these steamboat ships that would wreck in the, in the Missouri, and sink in the Missouri River. And so you researched it, and the Arabia was one that you researched that had sank in the Missouri River near you in 1856. Yeah. And you discovered, you realized that it was 50, 45 feet underneath a Kansas cornfield. Well, right? later I did. Once, once we did the test drilling, yeah. But not in the research. No one knew that. And no one knew where it was in the, in the old research. They said it sank a mile from Parkville. And that's all they knew. That's all they said. And uh, it was so, you'd have to get old maps of the river and draw the old maps onto new maps to see where the river has changed from back then until today. So then you get a, get a um, you come down a mile, because that's what the newspaper said, and that's where I started the search um, with the metal detector, walking up and down corn rows, back and forth and back and forth in this guy's farm. And after a while, after some walking, found it. <laughs> there was a big metal signal. There shouldn't have been there, but sure enough, there it was. And so then brought a drill rig out. And that's where we figured out how deep it was. Because once you start down, you didn't hit anything in 10 feet or 20 or even 30. You know, it was clear down to 40 some feet that the drill hit something really hard underground. And when pulled out of the ground, there was just a whole handful of oak and pine. And when you find oak and pine, because that's what boats are made of, and the high metal reading that you'll find with a metal detector, at 40 feet down, there's nothing down there that could be anything but a steamboat. <laughs> and what, so, what, what, did the, what did the farmer think of you out there? Was this somebody that you already knew, or you, you, you went up to this farmer and said, hey, I'm going to be... You know, don't don't be shocked when you see me walking around your farm. <laughs> well, you got to get permission. Yeah, you can't just be out there walking some guy's farm. That's not good. No, I got a hold of him, and 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 I've talked to a lot of farmers up until that, and a lot of the farmers will say, Dave, it's been dirt out there for like ever. I've owned it. I said this goes back before you or your dad or your grandpa. This goes way back. But you know, Norman, he was the landowner. Norman said, Dave, he says, I know that. He says, my great grandpa who owned the farm back in the 1860s talked about it. And his grandpa talked about it. And his dad talked about it. 
It had been a part of the folklore of their family for as long as he could ever remember. So he says, Dave, if you can find it, I know it's out there. I'll let you dig it. So I did. I found it. So me and Norman and his wife, Beulah, made a deal that we'd give him 15% of whatever. He would clean his stuff. We'd clean our stuff. Okay. He said, oh, I said, that's a deal. Go dig it. And we did. And then he'd come later. He says, Dave, that's the neatest stuff I've ever seen, but I don't want to clean all them shoes and clothes. It's way more work than I want to do. But he said, I like that you'll keep it. By that time, we had made the decision not to sell it, but to keep the collection. He says, I like the idea. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. You can have my share as well. It's yours. Let folks see and enjoy it. And, you know, Patty, we've not sold a thing of it all these years. It's still together as a collection. So... You, you, I, you need to describe what, because, because I have, and just to give a punchline, you, you've got it all in a museum, or at least most of it. You've got still yeah. some, what, I think 60 tons left of the 200 tons that still clean, yeah. to be cleaned and, and displayed and, and gone through. But uh, just tell us, tell, tell us the, the people listening, you know, kind of what was the first thing that you personally got your hands on that you discovered once you excavated and you found the hole and you started finding all the, the big barrels of cargo, what was the first thing that you personally found? Well, okay. Um, so you got to understand that none of us were archeologists. None of us are really historians. You know, we were dad and Greg and I fixed furnaces and air conditioners. One guy was a restaurant guy and one guy drove a bulldozer. And so <laughs> down we go. What an exciting thing. And we were doing it not to do a museum. We were doing it for the adventure and to learn to drive heavy equipment and for the fun of it, truthfully. And we're thinking as we dig deeper and deeper and deeper, we're digging an old 1856 pre-Civil War steamboat. The cargo that will be on it, we might even not know what the heck we're finding when we get to it. Down we go. And on the deck of the boat was the very first thing we found. It was a shoe. Well, everybody knows what shoes are, but nonetheless, we climbed off of our equipment and we circled around this little shoe and picked it up and began to wash it off. And to our surprise, the shoe was not made of leather like one would expect. Instead, the shoe was made of rubber. And when you washed the bottom of it off, the name on the bottom of the shoe, remember, pre-Civil War boat, mm -hmm. said the Goodyear Rubber Company. Wow. The Goodyear Rubber. We're thinking, did we dig the, how did this Goodyear shoe find its way down on this really, really old boat? <laughs> Well, <laughs> they'd learned to make rubber shoes by then. Wow. Uh, we found about 300 of them. The shoes we have is the oldest archaeological rubber of this type that exists anywhere that we know of. Shoes made by the Goodyear Rubber Company and the Ford Rubber Company. We've got rubber hair combs and rubber buttons and rubber buggy whips, all kinds of rubber products. Wow. Um, it's a remarkable collection. But then we'd go on to find all these other things, things that we were surprised to find. Wedgwood, China. Beautiful dishes that have never been used, never had any food ever on them. But, but perhaps some of the most ex amazing things was to find food. We'd find barrels that inside the butter and the buttermilk still smell fresh. There's no air down there. There's no oxygen. There's no sunlight. And without the air, uh, things don't rot, be decay. Things just don't decay. Some things will dissolve. But we'd find jars of pickles you could still eat brilliantly colored pie fillings, apples, gooseberries, cherries, blueberries. In many ways, Patty, this boat looked like it had just sunk. And we were there just hours after the sinking to recover the things that were on it. Even the iron wet for 132 years, you know, as it lay buried. It wasn't rusty. 
takes air to rust. Pocket knives wow. it open. You could cut with scissors. Wow. So the, the collection is just that well preserved. It, it's, a, it's an astounding story to me because uh, in looking at all the artifacts in the museum that you, by the way, did an amazing job. Uh, in displaying, I mean, really, I, I, I have a, a number of sisters and, and a brother, but my, one of my sisters is a historian. And uh, so I can appreciate just over the years of seeing some of the exhibits that she's created in Maryland, in Southern yeah. Maryland area. Um, and in fact, one of them was a tool museum. It's called the Duval Tool Museum. And so it's all these old tools from the Duval family and, and so forth. Um, but so you had, I, I saw an amazing display of, it looked like what a Home Depot would look like in 1856. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and somebody said early on, yeah, someone said of our collection early on, he says, oh my gosh, this is like a sunken Walmart store. And yeah, <laughs> just, oh, absolutely. Just a little of everything. Yeah. yeah exactly. It, mm -hmm. it was incredible. And the, the buttons and beads and, and uh, perfume, it, it's just absolutely incredible. And what a amazing story of how of preservation of yeah. how how you know how lucky to have all of that so amazingly preserved yeah, yeah and that's what we thought when we got dead digging you know we looked at all these things that we found and we said you know how can we sell and split this up i mean you don't find these collections like this anymore and and to sell it would be so short-sighted so we decided as a group that we wouldn't. And, and truthfully, a lot of people say, well, aren't you tempted to sell part of it? And, and I got to say, no, we're really kind of not. You know, we're, we love it to be together. So. Well, to me, to me, to be honest with you, when I went through the museum, that was my takeaway. One of my, certainly one of my takeaways was besides the amazing collection and it really puts you back in 1856 and what life must have been like and, and, and surprisingly what was available. That, yeah. that was actually yeah. really surprising. And how some things actually haven't really changed that much. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of, there was a couple of things that, um, that I was surprised. I'm trying to think of something. I mean, well, there was a few things, like some of the um, clothes pins, especially the ones yep. that actually had springs. Yeah. I, mean, yep. that, 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 I mean, looks like things haven't, that you would see today. Haven't changed much. Yeah, no. of course, China and things like that. But some of even the little eyeglasses and... And um, there was a dustpan. Well, obviously, a dustpan <laughs> hasn't changed any since 1856. Been around a long time, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and they do. Like the curvature of the axe handles, they're the same. Uh, the files, they're the same. And the trowels look like you just picked them up at the hardware store. Yeah, you know? that's, that, that was kind of an interesting uh, takeaway. But I really felt like one of the, the deeper story to me was these five people, including yourself, that um, that could have such a love of preserving and preservation, non-historians, non-archaeologists, that, that could just have a genuine love to, um, to clean this up. To, I'm sure you spent a lot of your own personal money doing this mm -hmm. uh, within the, the family and so forth. So to preserve it and then not to have anybody that got greedy and wanted to sell some of those, uh, especially the china and some of those know. things that I would imagine be very... Um, you know, worth a lot of money. Yeah, they are. Yeah, this, oh, I'm sure, I, you know, we've never appraised it all. Um, at the time that it sank, the insured loss was $18,200. In today's world, I have no idea what it's worth. But, you know, we just, we're just not all that tempted to, mm -hmm. you know, to sell it. So it's, it's better just to sit it and look at it and let folks see and enjoy it and mm -hmm. 
So absolutely. Yeah. So do you um, now the museum you uh, you now you excavated the Arabia steamboat uh, ship in mm-hmm. eighteen in nineteen eighty eight, correct? Eighty eight. Mm-hmm. Nineteen eighty eight, which was one hundred and thirty two years after it sank. It's correct. And then when did the museum? When did you actually get to the point where Open you? It up. Yeah. Well, the timeline was quite remarkable. Um, we start the dig on the 13th day of November of 88. We dug in the winter. And the farmer says, oh my gosh, Dave, come back in the spring. Spring's the worst time to dig. It rains and uh, um, you can't get your trucks and your equipment and your fuel out to the dig site. So we dug in the coldest months of the year, November, December, January, February. So we start to dig in November uh, of 88. We opened the museum the 13th day of November, 91, three years to the day. We dug it, we cleaned enough to open a museum, uh, found a building, which is an old vegetable wholesale warehouse, fixed it up into a museum, and staffed a few people, including ourselves, and three years to the day, we opened. And that's, I mean, that's a lot to do in three years. Yes, it considering is. Considering <laughs> we didn't know anything about digging, or preservation, or how do you even do a museum? We had this great big building then, and how do you make this <laughs> a vegetable basement, a, a vegetable wholesale warehouse basement into a museum? We had to figure all that out and do it quick because we had huge loans. We borrowed the money to dig it. It was it was a million dollars to dig that boat. We had no idea that we we're going to spend that kind of money. Wow. But, but we did it that cheap, and I say that cheap. Oh, my gosh, that's still a lot of money. But um, if you were to hire people, to have done it, it would have been far more. We had to learn to drive equipment and dig big holes, and, and we did it ourselves. There's only four or five of us typically on a typical day out there. Friends would come on weekends once in a while to help, but but generally it was four or five of us every day. And how long did that go on before you closed it up? Four months. It took four months from November through February. Um, you've got to be out of the farm by about the first of March. Here in Missouri, the weather starts getting warm. And once it starts to warm and the ground starts to thaw, then not only can you not get through your boat, you've got about two miles across farm ground to reach it. But we're digging, we dug a hole through sand and earth 45 feet down to this boat. And the, the ground was not stable. The only reason it stayed up is the walls were frozen. It was a really bitter cold winter that year. And um, the, the cold temperatures kept the ground from caving in. But the 1st of March, once that starts to thaw, it's really not safe to be down in that hole as deep as it was. Those walls were steep. But we finished the third week of February where it was still cold, and we began to push the hole in, and we filled it in, and we were gone by the first of part of May when the farmer came to plant his corn. Out. Wow. We were going, it was all back to farm ground again. That's so amazing. And so, and I should clarify, the, the cornfield is in Kansas. But you're actually in Missouri, so just right over the river. And as the river moved, yeah. as the yeah. river shifted, it, um, that's yeah. why you ended up in, in, right over the river on Kansas side. Yeah. We were only about six miles from, the, from the, mu- uh, the museum location in Missouri to where we dug the boat was six miles as the crow flies. So we're not far away. No. And the museum is in Kansas City. Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, mm-hmm. 400 Grand Boulevard in, this, in the historic city market, just near the river, very close. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing, and uh, you 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 should really mention how the hull, how you preserved the hull, because that's really the only part of the actual ship that you did excavate and put in the museum, correct? 
Well, we got others too. The big paddle wheel that you saw there, mm -hmm. that's all wood off the boat. Not the wheel itself, because we oh, get that okay. turns into a big pool of water, but the heavy timbers next to it and the arm, the big arm, um, and the engine, that's all off the boat. Okay. And those big boilers that you saw, mm -hmm. those are off the boat. We've got that as well. Uh, and we even found a tree that sunk it. The oak tree, you saw that? I did. That Not the whole tree, but the part that uh, smashed through the boat, and that broke off up inside of it. And so when we were down in the front left side of the boat in the cargo hold, here was this great big tree. And you thought for a minute, why were they shipping a tree to the frontier? <laughs> but it dawns on you that, oh, that's not. This, was, this came through the side wall of this boat and is what caused the wreck. So we've got that on display as well. But um, to answer your question, that the huge, very back of the boat, we cut that off and we brought it from the dig site, put it into the museum, and to preserve that, um, everything has to be preserved. But because of its size, it's huge. We, we made a shower curtain all the way around it and on the ceiling, a spray system that sprays a chemical of polyethylene glycol onto the wood. And we did that for years and years and years. Um, the wood has saturated now with the polyethylene and we no longer need to do it. We've left the curtains up and the spray system so folks can see and understand better how we did it. But that's exactly how it was done. And did you get someone, how did you know how to do that? Somebody, uh, you researched that or somebody consulted and said, hey, this is what you need to do in order to preserve this wood for years to come? Well, we didn't know how to preserve the wood. The plan was to dig in the winter and then freeze it. And we did that at the end of each workday, which we closed the dig site at night, uh, or we left the, the dig site at night about seven o'clock, arriving back in, in Kansas City or back in our hometown of Independence, which is just a few miles away, about eight o'clock at night with truckfuls of stuff that we'd found each day, none of which liked the air. So from 8 o'clock until midnight, we brought it out of the trucks and into this little work area and washed it, cleaned it, and prepared it to be frozen in blocks of ice. Um, we did that every night. Um, and at the end of the dig, everything was frozen, everything was stable. I say everything, not the dishes, the bricks. Those wouldn't require it, or the iron, but the organics, the leather and the wood and such things. All that was frozen. The plan then was to call these big universities that surround us, KU in Lawrence, Kansas, and University of Missouri. They both have big departments of archaeology, and we called them, but they didn't work on wet things. They went to dry parts of the world to dig, and the Smithsonian didn't know how. We checked with them, and there were back then, you can imagine, such a time. But um, So we called into Europe, and we found two places there, one in Stockholm, Sweden, the Vasa, one in Portsmouth, England, a boat called the Mary Rose. Both were nautical recovery projects and they were using polyethylene glycol and freeze dryers and they were so helpful and they suggested some books to read we read them and that's how we begin to experiment on our wood and and leather and all of the different things we found our lab was our kitchen and our garage and our living room and in three years we would figured it out and it had opened the museum so none of us are formally trained at all the Arabia collection to this day remains the largest collection of wet organics been found in the world from one single dig site. I mean, boots and wow. shoes alone, we found 4,000 of them. <laughs> and, wood. and so the back of the boat, we just, we did it the same way we're doing small things, except on a bigger scale. We put a big shower curtain in and sprayed it with something as big as a whole great big room. And, and that's all we knew to do. And it worked great. 
That's so incredible. And in fact, uh, is it is it true that the that uh, the History Channel, I think it is, or some television network uh, is, is wanting to do a documentary on it or a reality show on uh, this whole project? Yeah, yeah. They, they we found another boat, and oh it's goodness, the Malta. Oh my gosh, I know it's a great <laughs> boat. I think in 1841, it predates the Arabia. The Arabia's cargo was was coming up the river to the settlers. The Malta. In 1841, it was coming to the Indians. It was an Indian trade ship working for the American Fur Company. Its cargo would have gone into the wilderness, and then the Indians bringing the furs down to the trading post would have traded for the goods that the Malta would have brought west. Um, it lays in a guy's farm, about 1,500 feet from the river, but deep. It's 53 feet down. It's deeper than what the Arabia is. Did one core sample into that boat to confirm cargo still existed, and what did it look like? It's been wet for longer than the Arabia. One time in, found 150 gold buttons and ceramics and fabric wow. and chunks of lard and window glass. and I mean, all kinds of stuff. I mean, one hole. It'll be a remarkable collection. Um, and so, yeah, the History Channel has, has expressed an interest to, uh, to do a show on that. I, I don't know that that really works out quite, you know, but who knows? I mean, but it's a remarkable story. and. Yeah. If, if not the History Channel, somebody will want to cover that story. Oh, absolutely. I think it's fascinating. And in fact, I think it would be a really cool reality show to watch as, as you're digging, as you then excav excavate that, uh, that steamboat and bring up those items and all that would be just absolutely fascinating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, there's just something fabulous about a treasure hunt story, especially oh, one absolutely. that finds treasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because usually it's just a bunch of folklore and uh, about whiskey and gold, right? <laughs> well, usually what they are, Patty, is treasure hunting stories, and that's what they do is they hunt it. This will be a treasure finding story, and it's a big difference. Oh, absolutely. Well, I've got to I've got to ask you a couple more questions. Sure. Now, do the kids, uh, your kids, grandkids, are they interested in, in, in this, preserving this legacy as well? Because obviously, um, you know, as time goes on, someone has to continue to carry this on. Yeah. Yes. Um, my son, Matt, works there, and, and I've got a couple girls that grew up in, the, in their early days of life, helping out, doing things. They've gone off to do ner be nurses now. But I think if we dug the Malta or any other boat, they would certainly enjoy the dig. I don't know that they'd ever come and work at the museum, maybe. Hard, hard to say. Sometimes, you know, dad's hobbies don't translate to the next generation. <laughs> but maybe, you know, but we'd like, we've set up a foundation now. And the Arabia collection and the Malta collection will go into that. Um, and truly, when you step back and look at it, the, the goal would be not just to dig the Malta, but to dig six boats altogether. One boat from each decade of river travel, starting in the 1820s through the 1870s. By the 1880s, the trains had come west and replaced the steamboats. So to dig one boat from each of those decades, and like the Arabia, tell the story of that decade, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, right on through. And what a, what a, what a museum, what a story, and, and, and what an opportunity to find amazing buried treasure. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that would be so cool. So fantastic. I love it. <laughs> well, that's the goal. Okay. It's a big goal. Um, but I, I think, I think it can be done, you know, somehow we need a print and press to print some money in our basement <laughs> to make this thing possible. But well, we but, just you know, got to get that story out there because I have out. a feeling, yeah, there's a lot of people who would join you in that effort. I really well, do. It'll be a 
It's a great effort, and there's room there's room for others if they'd like to join in. Yeah, well, that is so fantastic. And I, the last question I got to ask you, David, is now, did you ever? I know you found some gin. Did did you or anybody else ever taste any of that gin or uh, or eat any of those pickles that I saw uh, so nicely preserved? <laughs> yeah, you know, we found those pickles. And Jerry, the the restaurant guy, says. I'll eat one of those pickles, he said. I said, Jerry, that's a really old pickle. He says, no, no, no. He says, it'll be okay. It looked great. Look into the jar. Mm -hmm. So he takes the cork out of this one and pulls his pickle out. And he looked at that pickle for a long time. And then he smelled it. It smelled good. So he ate it. And he'd say later, he says, you know, he says it, it didn't crunch to eat it, but it wasn't soft or squishy or didn't taste weird. It was just like eating one from the store. So... We watched him for a couple of days just to see, but <laughs> I was, I was kept coming back, you know. But he did. He, we, we, he tried a lot of different things that came off the boat, including the champagne, not the gin, but there was a bottle of champagne that that went around the group a couple of times. I should have tried it. I chickened out. But the guy said it was still fizzy, still carbonated after 132 years, still carbonated. That's unheard of. But it was. Oh, my goodness. Well, I would think as far as when it comes to alcohol, you know, wines or, or, or gin or champagne or anything like that, that you'd, I'd probably be anxious to try that yeah. <laughs> just because well, it's we, so aged. We called, we called the distributor and we said, hey, we found a boat that sank. This is early on and no one had ever heard of this before. He says, well, he says, you know, he says, you've said you've, if the boat's 132-year-old and still fizzy. He says, it's impossible. He says, things... Carbonated beverages lose their fizz within seven or eight or nine or ten years. So to find something that's a hundred and some years old and still carbonated, he says it's impossible. But this boat lay without air, without sunlight, tremendous amounts of pressure there. Mm -hmm. And it's a different world there, 40 feet down underground or 45. And so what we found, I promise you, it was carbonated. I saw it squirt out of the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, so you know that, that, that it's true that it is possible because you saw it with your own eyes. <laughs> I saw it with your eyes. Well, I love your story, David, and I hope that a lot of people will become aware of the Arabia Steamboat Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, and will check it out. How else can they find you online and so forth? Oh, you know, you can Google Arabia Steamboat Museum, you'll find it, but if you can remember... Um, our web address is pretty simple. It's the same year the boat sank, 1856.com. So 1856.com. People can check that out, see the, the full story, come check out the museum and maybe get involved if, because it sounds yep. like you've got, uh, lots more work to do. <laughs> we do. We do indeed. Oh, and we're on Facebook. Everybody's on Facebook as well. So we're not hard to find and come to Kansas City and see us. We're Absolutely. open seven days a week. Wow. Well, thank you so much, David. It's been a real pr uh, pleasure to talk with you about this and share your story. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you, Patty, for helping us introduce the Arabia to a wider audience. Have a great day. All right. You too. Well, this wraps up this episode of the Pitbull Patty Show, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.